0: I failed to mention to Steve that I learned before services, just before services, that Margaret Russell had passed away. I think uh, my understanding she was a member here in the past at White Oak, Margaret Russell, and some of you uh, have known Margaret, and I think uh, her obituary I understood was in the paper perhaps today. Was that correct? Or uh, Okay. Okay. I knew J.C. had mentioned her to me recently, I thought, but I thought perhaps he had mentioned that she had already passed away. She had, so it's not a recent thing. That's what I was thinking, that it was not. And not the same one. Okay, okay. Well, forget that then as far as (laughs) any connection with anyone from here. It's not a Margaret Russell from here. Okay, all right. Well, that's easily confused, I guess, when you have two Margaret Russells passing away within a relatively short period of time, I suppose. We appreciate your presence tonight. We are studying the book of uh, Philippians and we are, whoops, I went the wrong direction here. Now I'm back I think, am I not? In the right way, yeah. Uh, We are in chapter 3 as you can see on the screen to look at uh, the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 3. And they begin, these verses do, this chapter with the word finally. It's been said that the Apostle Paul was the father of all preachers who said finally in a sermon and then got their second wind after that. (laughs) But uh, finally here literally is for the rest or it indicates for the rest, for what remains in other words as he uh, moves through this uh, beautiful epistle that he wrote to Uh, the church that he had a tremendous love and appreciation for, and that is the church uh, at Philippi. And as he says here, literally, for the rest, my brethren, he says something here that we have already seen back in chapter uh, 2, verse 18, rejoice uh, with me. Uh, It is something that we will also see again when we come to uh, chapter 4, And verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And here it is, rejoice in the Lord. And then he adds, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Some have thought this is attributed to the phrase or the admonition, rejoice in the Lord, and the fact that he has said this before and will say it uh, again. But it may very well be simply to the warnings that he has issued before, and that he does not hesitate to issue again and again those warnings against these uh, false teachers, these Judaizing teachers about whom he is to write again as we look at verse two, the very next verse, and he has warned of them in many places to many congregations time and again. And it also Uh, reminds us as Peter in his second epistle wrote to those brethren and said, I do not neglect to put you in remembrance, though you know these things and have learned them. They did not apologize for repetition. And it indeed reminds us that, as we have often said, the best teacher is repetition, repetition, repetition. And so he drives home the warnings here beginning in verse 2. For you it is safe that I warn you about dogs, literal dogs, no, beware of dogs. That is, those who are uh, these Judaizing teachers, we believe here, uh, mentioned as dogs, also described in two other ways here, all three descriptions being uh, being uh, applicable to one group of people. That is, these Judaizing teachers who in many places were seeking to lead astray Uh, the brethren in Christ, and to bind upon them the law of Moses, specifically circumcision. Because he says here, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. That is, those who would mutilate the flesh. That is, those who would bind or seek to bind circumcision upon you. And here he describes it not as circumcision, but as mutilation. Now in the next verse, he will make clear that he is referring to circumcision when he talks about the mutilation because he's going to tell us who the true circumcision are. Who are those who are the true circumcision? He will tell us in uh, verse 3 in just a moment. But dogs to the Jews were not pets like we think of our our dogs. Uh, they were unclean uh, animals. They were scavenger-type animals. Uh, Animals—they were in no way associated a, in a very pleasant connotation, uh, as we associate our dogs and cats as as domesticated uh, pets. The Gentiles uh, were referred to at times as uh, as dogs. Matthew 15:27, the Syrophoenician uh, woman uh, and her encounter with uh, with Jesus uh, shows that to uh, to be the case, and so. Here it is a very uncomplimentary term that Paul uses to describe those who would divide the body of Christ, who would seek to lead astray those who were uh, Christians at Philippi and of course his warning is issued in other epistles to other churches as we're studying on Sunday morning in the the Galatian letters. Then he tells us, and we've alluded to this in our study even this morning in, in Galatians, but we come to it here again, he tells us who constitute the true circumcision? who are those who who are truly the circumcision? We are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. These Judaizing teachers were those who were uh, who were having confidence in in the flesh that is in uh, cardinal, in uh, carnal ordinances, fleshly ordinances, in ordinances that uh, were no longer of any value whatsoever, having pertained to the law of Moses, the commandments that have been nailed to the cross, taken out of the way, and have been replaced by uh, the New Testament or the New Covenant. We are the spiritually circumcised, in other words, he's saying here. It is not physical circumcision that avails anything. Remember, in uh, the Galatian letter, he said in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through or by love, a working faith motivated by love. What does that faith motivated by love motivate us to do? to worship God in the Spirit. And we have talked already in our class this morning about the fact that worshiping God in the Spirit or by the Spirit uh, as it is rendered at times indicates worshiping according to the teaching of the Spirit, which makes it abundantly clear that I am not free nor are you free to worship God in any way that you choose. You're not free to worship God in a way that makes you feel good. You are only free to worship God as God has directed. Remember, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit. Now there, in spirit references the attitude with which we are to worship. In the spirit, capital S here, references according to the teaching of the spirit. But it is the teaching of the spirit that tells us to worship in spirit. That is to worship with the right attitude. But the teaching of the spirit also tells us to worship in truth. If we worship in truth, we're worshiping according to the teaching of the Spirit. But what is truth? Your word is truth, Jesus declared in John 17:17, 17, 17. As he prayed for the apostles in that part of that beautiful prayer, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Therefore, if Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, and thus to all of us for all time, that you are to worship in truth, and he said in his prayer to the Father, Your word is truth, then to worship in truth is to worship according to the word. And that's equivalent to worshiping God in or by the Spirit. That is, as the Spirit has revealed worship to us. What has the Spirit revealed to us? Five specific acts of worship in which the New Testament church, when it was established, engaged. Five and no more and no less. And that's why on the Lord's Day we worship God through those five avenues. Is our heart to be fully engaged in that worship? Absolutely. But a heart fully engaged in wrong acts of worship is worship that is vain. It is worship that is vain. Worship that is in truth, that is according to five specific acts, no more, no less, but from a heart that is not engaged, is also vain worship. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit or in truth. No, in spirit and in truth. Therefore, we worship from the heart according to the teaching of the spirit that is in truth. And that's what Paul affirms here. We are truly the circumcision. We are those who are spiritual Israel. We are spiritual Israel. Those who worship God according to the teaching of the Spirit. That's spiritual Israel. Remember in the uh, Galatian uh, letter, it is abundantly clear that those who are the spiritually circumcised are those not who keep the law of Moses, but those who keep the covenant, the new covenant of Jesus Christ. Listen to Galatians 3:28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to what? The promise, what promise? The promise that was first given to Abraham in Genesis 12 when he was told, Get out of your country, from your home country, go to a land that I will show you, and the promise to make of him a great nation, to multiply his seed, and that through that seed, the promised seed, singular Christ, would come through whom all of us can be a part of the circumcision about which Paul speaks here, the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. It is in the church, in Christ Jesus, among those who worship God according to the teaching of the Spirit. And who what? Three, three qualifications here. We are truly the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, who rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Who can rejoice outside of Christ Jesus? No one. Who can rejoice in Christ Jesus? everyone. Should we have any confidence in fleshly attainments? No. And Paul is going to elaborate and remind his readers for all time that if anyone had any reason to place any confidence or stock in fleshly attainments, the apostle Paul would have been just such a one. And he goes on here to say, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone think, else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, i more so. He's referring, obviously, to these Judaizing teachers. These Judaizing teachers who are telling you all of these things about the law of Moses and seeking to uh, to draw you away from Christ, uh, if they think they have something that they could brag about, so to speak, then i more. Now, is he going to go into some details here for the sake of... of uh, Patting himself on the back? Absolutely not. In fact, he's going to tell us that all of these things that he's about to mention were as rubbish to him. But what were they? Well, he was circumcised the eighth day. He was not circumcised as some proselyte. Circumcised on the eighth day, just as the covenant that was made with Abraham in Genesis 17 called for. Circumcision on the eighth day of those newborn children children eight days old we've talked about before that uh, from a medical standpoint that is the day in a child's life when the prothrombin levels are at their highest level therefore the bleeding possibilities are minimized at the eighth day more than at any other time in that child's life why did God choose the eighth day he obviously did so for a reason circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. In other words, I'm a descendant of Israel. Jacob, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. I'm a descendant of Jacob, of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the two tribes that remained loyal, ultimately, uh, longer to the Lord than did those northern tribes. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, which was a Jewish way of expressing excellence among those who were Jews under the law. Concerning the law, a what? A Pharisee. Now we know that in Scripture the Lord had a great deal of criticism that He leveled against the Pharisees. But these were Pharisees who were uh, hypocritical Pharisees. That didn't mean that everyone who was a Pharisee was in the same category as those Pharisees with whom the Lord dealt so regularly and so severely and very clearly in His condemnation. There were those Pharisees who were certainly... Uh, who were certainly dedicated to the law. Uh, the word itself indicates separate. The Pharisees were separated. They were the strictest sect of the Jews. Uh, they upheld the law. The Apostle Paul was a dedicated Pharisee. He was one, remember in Acts 23, 1, who had lived in all good conscience even when he was a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, what about his zeal? Verse 6 says, concerning zeal... Here's how much zeal I had. I persecuted the church. And oh, that's an understatement, isn't it? Did he ever persecute the church? Seeking letters from the high priest, going to Damascus to bring back those who were of the way Christianity, bringing them back bound to Jerusalem so that they could stand trial for being nothing more than followers of Christ. That's the kind of zeal he had for his religion and how how dedicated he was to persecuting something that he thought was opposed to God. But it just simply shows how wrong, sincerely so, but wrong nonetheless he was in that persecution. And it reminds us, when he mentions zeal here, of what he himself later wrote about his brethren in the flesh, the Israelites. Brethren, my prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Remember Romans 10, verse 1, beginning. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Paul himself was among them at one time, zealous to the point of persecuting the church, even going on the road to do so. And concerning the righteousness which is in the law, what? Blameless. I was sincere in my keeping of the law. He doesn't say I was sinless, but he says I was blameless. Now, can any of the Judaizing teachers match that? In effect, he is saying, no. In other words, if there were reason to still hold on to that kind of notoriety, to those kinds of credentials, then certainly wouldn't I hold on to those? Why would I... Give it up. And yet in the very next verse, that's what he says he did. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted what? Loss for Christ. Counted what? Loss for Christ. He does not say these I have put on the back burner. I've held on to them to some extent. I haven't given up all of these things because after all, look at my educational attainment. Look at all the time I put into my education. Sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, the well-known... Uh, Teacher, look at all that I have invested. Surely I can't give it all up, but I've given up most of it. Or I've put it on a back burner, so to speak. No, I've counted it as what? Loss for Christ. That word loss is a word that is used in reference to loss of, of merchandise. It's used in Acts chapter 27. When uh, the Apostle Paul on one occasion said to those who had insisted on going on their journey despite the fact that he said he didn't think the weather was conducive to it and they had the shipwreck, had to throw everything overboard to lighten the ships, to try to save it, he said, if you had listened to me, you would not have suffered this loss. It's the very same word here. What kind of loss did they suffer on that voyage? They lost it because they threw it overboard they threw it aside, they lost it forever. And that's exactly the kind of loss he's talking about here in terms of his attainments as a Jew. They are gone. I have counted, that's perfect tense, indicating I have done it with lasting results. It is something I have done, it's a completed action, and the results are continuing to this day. But if we had any doubt, he says, yet indeed I also count and that's present tense I keep on counting them I have counted those things lost in the past with the resulting uh, with the results continuing to this day I continue to view them in the same way all things I continue to count as loss rubbish trash as a little bit later on in the verse count them as rubbish the only time in the New Testament that word is used and it means that which is absolute garbage rubbish, I have counted that as loss and continue to do so. For what? For the excellence of the feeling that I have in Christ Jesus. No, for the excellence of the knowledge, what I know about Christ Jesus. Not what I think I know, not what I speculate, not what I feel in my heart. But what I know I have obtained, I know I have obtained it. I can have that knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. It simply reminds us of what we talked about this morning in the lesson on love in Matthew 16. 24 through 26, where the word is not found, but the principles of biblical love are there. The desire to follow Jesus, Paul had that once he learned the truth, didn't he? The denial that was necessary to follow Jesus, oh yes, indeed. He demonstrates it in his life and reviews it here in this epistle as to what he threw overboard completely with no regrets, no second-guessing no second thoughts I would do it again in a heartbeat in other words that I may gain Christ should we be any different should our attitude be any different the desire followed by a denial and then that decision that we never look back on with any regret whatsoever why because having done that he says, I can be found in him. <laughs> That's interesting. And if you're looking for me, where can you find me? In Christ. That's where you can find me. That's what he's saying. If anyone is looking for us, where should they be able to find us? In Christ. In Christ. Because we're there, because we we earned our our salvation. We're in Christ because of our own righteousness? No, he quickly adds, not having my own righteousness. Then he brings in the law, which is from the law. That's what people were seeking to do under the old law. They were seeking to be righteous, and yet their efforts were futile because they could not live that law perfectly. And God understood that and gave them that law in the fervent Hope that they would understand that and be very receptive to something far, far better when it came. More specifically, something better, someone better when he came, the Christ. And yet, for the most part, they rejected him. And so I'm in Christ, not because of my own righteousness, which comes through the law. I couldn't be in Christ through the law. That's not a possibility. I had to embrace the new law, which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God, which comes by what? By faith. Not only my personal faith, but specifically the system of faith, the gospel, as it is often referred to in the New Testament. And what's the result? Oh, it's a powerfully wonderful result. That I may know him. Being found in Christ is to know him. Back to that surety that we can have in the knowledge that we can gain of Christ. That I may know him and the power of his what? resurrection not the power of his birth not the power of his life not the power of his death but the power of his resurrection does that diminish his birth does that diminish his sinless life does that diminish his death of course not but had he remained in the tomb then we'd still be without hope tonight wouldn't we that's the power of the resurrection accompanied by all of these other beautiful sinless attributes and qualities that Christ demonstrated as he came to this earth took upon himself the form of humanity while remaining deity and lived that perfectly sinless life died that horrifically painful death separated from the father for a time by the sins that he bore upon his sinless shoulders and the pain and the agony of that separation that we cannot even imagine, and he was raised from the dead, that we might know him and that same power of his resurrection and anticipate that resurrection, as he'll point out in just a moment, in the final verse we'll look at tonight. But notice something else that's so important here as well. The fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship of his sufferings. How should we feel based upon this and so many other texts in Scripture if and when we are called upon to suffer for Christ? We should rejoice in that suffering. Therefore, we can rejoice in the Lord even in suffering. And Peter, as he points out in 1 Peter chapter 4, as we have studied uh, that epistle in past uh, times, points out that it's not suffering as a, a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer that we ought to glory in. In fact, he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer, as a busybody in other people's matters. That's First Timothy four fifteen. But in verse 16, he says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him what? Let him glorify God. In this matter, is that not the same thing Paul is saying here? That I can have fellowship in his sufferings and that I can rejoice in that fact. That I've been privileged to share in the same kind of suffering that Christ endured. And ultimately, Paul did share in that same kind of suffering as did so many others in the first century in ways that would truly sicken us to dwell upon in terms of the manner in which early Christians were put to their deaths at times and yet they rejoice to have that fellowship in those sufferings. What does it take to reach that point? It takes application of our minds to becoming like the mind that Christ had, as Paul earlier in this same epistle we're studying reminded us. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In 1 Peter 4, verse 1, Peter put it this way, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind. What kind of mind, Peter the same mind to suffer, the mind to suffer that he had. Arm yourselves with the same mind. Then he says, For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. When we studied that, we pointed out that Peter is not saying that if you have suffered in the flesh, you're sinless. You've suddenly become sinless if you've been called upon to suffer in the flesh for the cause of Christ. No, he is saying this, I believe, that he who reaches a point in his spiritual maturity that he would willingly and gladly suffer for the cause of Christ, sin is not going to trouble him as it once did in his earlier Christian life because he's matured to a point in his life where he's willing to suffer, yes, even to die for the cause of Christ. Will the same temptations that might have overcome me as a babe in Christ overcome me as a mature Christian? Not likely not if I've matured in my faith to the point that I know that I'd be willing to die for the cause of Christ. And so the fellowship of his sufferings is a powerful phrase filled with meaning that reminds us of how we should be applying ourselves to a growth in Christ that would enable us to say with the same confidence with which Paul expressed it here, a willingness to suffer not only that but to die look at it being conformed to his death in other words conforming myself to die in the same way that he died that should be my determination that I would live my life in such a way growing each day in such a way that if I were confronted by someone who said either renounce Christ or die this minute i wouldn't hesitate to be conformed to his death and why shouldn't i because of the final verse in our study tonight because of the belief in the resurrection from the dead don't fear him jesus said in matthew 10:28 who kills the body fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell fear the Lord give him the reverential fear and respect don't fear the one who says I'm going to kill you if you don't give up Christ because there is a resurrection from the dead now is Paul saying here that I'm not sure there's a resurrection from the dead and if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead is he doubting that there's a resurrection from the dead No, 1 Corinthians 15, the same writer wrote that great chapter that's called the great chapter of the resurrection where he clearly affirms that there is a resurrection. He's not saying I want to be raised from the dead or even expressing a desire to be raised from the dead. He knows he's going to be raised from the dead. What is obvious here is that he is saying "I, I want to attain to that resurrection from the dead that will put me where I want to be. And that is ultimately in heaven. In other words, I want to be raised to be with the righteous in the resurrection from the dead. He knew when he wrote these words, resurrection is a surety. All of us are going to be raised from the dead. The question is, will we attain to the resurrection from the dead that Paul had in mind here? And that is the resurrection to righteousness and to life everlasting rather than the resurrection to everlasting destruction. And what will determine that will be our attitude toward this, the New Testament of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Have you obeyed this testament and what it teaches you to do, to become a part of that testament, the covenant? That is, have you believed that Jesus is the Christ, acted upon that faith by repenting of your sins, confessing him to be the Christ, and then being buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins? If not, then we plead with you to do that that you might have that hope of attaining to the resurrection of the dead to be with the righteous forevermore, and if you have known known him and have been found in him at one time because you obeyed the gospel but If someone were looking for you, as it were, tonight, they couldn't find you in him because you've strayed from him, you can be in him again by coming home in repentance and confession of any sin that needs to be confessed in that public way that we might pray with you and for you to the God of heaven who will restore you to your rightful place that you once enjoyed in his Son. As we stand to sing, will you come?